Welcome, friends, to the second Sunday of Advent. This is the time where uh, we look back to the birth of Jesus and the, the blessings that he brought to this world, gifts that are unique to him that we cannot find anywhere else. And we also, we don't just look back, we, we look forward because we are looking to what God is still going to do through Jesus. Uh, we have been promised that Jesus will return to take us to the home that God has prepared for us, and we eagerly await his return. It would not break my heart, in fact, if Jesus came right now. That would be totally okay with me. He doesn't have to wait till I'm done. Uh, none of those things, you know, I, I would love to see him now. Uh, therefore, we live our lives here on earth in the great in-between. Uh, we are... Uh, uh, living in the knowledge and the reality of what God has already done for us, and we are looking forward to what he has promised to do. So last week, we started out by lighting the candle of hope, and we talked about how hope is a good thing, that it is essential to life, and that someone without hope is someone for whom life is a very deep struggle. Uh, Maybe some of you have been without hope of any kind. And you know the emptiness that you feel when you find yourself in that place. We talked about how the hope we have in Jesus is fundamentally different from the hope that we can have in anything here on earth. The hope we have here on earth is essentially hoping for the best. Um, We might prepare for it. We might do everything we can uh, to get ourselves to the good thing that we are hoping for. But we also acknowledge that a lot of it is outside of our control. And there's not very much we can do to assure that our hope will be fulfilled. In comparison to that, in contrast, the hope that we have in Jesus is built on God's track record. Uh, God has been faithful to his people through all the ups and downs of the human experience. He has redeemed, delivered, and restored, and he has made a promise that he will do that for us again. We are already deemed, but he will return to take us home to the place that God has for us. Therefore, no matter what life may throw at us, no matter how uh, strange or weird or bad or frustrating things might be here on earth, our hope if it's put in Jesus, can stand firm through it all. Amen? Today, we lit the candle of peace, proclaiming that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, has come and will come again. So, let's start out again with the most basic question, just as we did last week. What is peace? And again, I went to my good friend, ChatGPT, to help me artificially come up with an answer to this question. Uh, So this is what it says. Peace is a state of tranquility or quietness often characterized by the absence of violence, conflict, or disturbance. It goes beyond the mere absence of war and includes a sense of harmony, cooperation, and mutual understanding among individuals, communities, or nations. Peace can manifest at various levels, including personal peace within oneself interpersonal peace in relationships, and global peace among nations. That is a lovely definition, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's such a great idea. I love uh, the idealism of it. There is just one major problem that I have with this definition. 
Allow me to uh, explain why I think this definition is not realistic. Um, if we wanted something, I think, that was more true to life than what this definition of peace is, today we would have lit the candle of chaos. Maybe you've never seen the candle of chaos. Uh, it's, it's black and twisted, and it shoots out sparks randomly as, as it burns down. This is why I think this way about peace. Let's go back to the definition. Okay, so let's just take it from the top. Peace is tranquility or quietness. That's fine. I can handle that part of it, but look at what comes after. Harmony, cooperation, and mutual understanding among individuals, communities, and nations. I don't know if ChatGPT just doesn't play, you know, pay attention to what is going on in the world, but all of this is not only dependent on me having my act together, it is dependent upon everyone else having their act together as well. And I guarantee you, I could not get everyone in this room to agree on where to go to lunch. And if we can't do that, how is any of this going to be possible? How is it attainable? And let's look more specifically. Peace in relationships. Well, relationships are difficult, aren't they? Whether it's friendship or, or, or parent and children or with your spouse or with your parents or whatever it is, relationships are difficult and they take work. And sometimes our relationships are a source of peace for us, but they are also sources of conflict and stress, aren't they? Even our best relationship can foster such hits as self-doubt, anger, anxiety, and fear. And hopefully they don't all the time. That's a bad relationship if you're feeling that all the time, but we know that those things are present. Let's look at the next one. Peace between nations. Can we just agree that that's not likely? Anytime in, I don't know, ever, that it's not likely? Um, you know, I, I, I love the question that was asked at one point in time during a time of great chaos here in our country. Can't we all just get along? No, we can't all just get along. And furthermore, I'm not sure that we even all want to get along with one another. And this dynamic spills over into other areas of our life, and sometimes the tension and fear we feel about the chaos in the world around us creates fear, anxiety, and anger in our world. But that's, those two aren't even the most complicated ones. Really, I think the most complicated one is um, personal peace, being at peace with yourself. And I mean, isn't that a bag of cats? I'm not at war with myself, but I'm also not at perfect peace with myself. I suffer from depression and anxiety, and over the years, I have learned to accept myself in ways that I could not before I started to deal with my severe depression. But it's a struggle every day. We care, whether we say we do or not, 
We care about what others think of us. We care about being a good child, spouse, parent, friend, employee, business owner, whatever it is. And there is so much to manage in our lives, and we want to do well at all the things. So we bear the weight of others' expectations along with our own expectations for ourselves. And that, my friends, can be a very heavy weight. It can be a very heavy weight. I mean, I take medication to help me manage those feelings. That's how heavy it can be to me sometimes. And that doesn't even include the unknown that lies ahead of us and the fear we might have over what is to come. So these really encouraging thoughts that I've just given you lead me to an important question. When we ask for peace or we pursue peace or we pray for peace, what are we actually asking for? What what is it that we are expecting? And are we praying for are, are we praying for patience? God, will you help me to deal with all the things that are going on that I might have peace in the midst of chaos? Are, are we praying for a certain thing to come to fruition? Because, you know, if this happens, I will experience greater peace in my life. So God, make this happen so that I can have peace. This is a good one here. Are we praying that others with whom we are in conflict will stop being so stupid and agree with us? Is that what we're praying for? What is it that we're asking for? And here's the thing that's kind of convicting to me. I think that most often when we are praying for peace, we are praying or asking for God to change things around us so that we feel better about it. More so than we're asking God to change our own perspective on whatever it is. Now this has happened, you know, I... Advent happens every year, and I preach on the things every year. And every single year, the week before, I preach about peace. Something happens to increase my anger, my worry, my fear, my anxiety. It's like, it's like Advent itself is working against me to create you know, these different scenarios that take away peace from me. But it reminds me of something important. If when we ask for peace, we are asking for the world around us to stop being chaotic so that we can find tranquility, then we are chasing a false idea. Because the truth is, the world is chaotic, isn't it? And the world is, to a degree, out of control. And the world is full of people who are all dealing with their own issues, their own relationships, their own feelings about what's going on in the world. So what are we expecting then to happen? 
Now listen, I, I, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I do think that a kind of peace is possible, but I wouldn't call it peace, and I certainly wouldn't call it this. I would call it something more like equilibrium. Everything feels in balance for a moment. That's, that's kind of how I would describe it. But, you know, my, my, my bottom line opinion is that I don't think peace on earth is possible. I think that we can get close to certain things, but I think peace on earth isn't possible. And it feels to me sometimes, any Seinfeld watchers out there? Anybody used to watch Seinfeld or still watch Seinfeld? <clears throat> it reminds me a little bit of Frank Costanza, who was George's dad, who started listening to a self-help, a self-help thing. And whenever he was mad or upset or angry, he would say the words, serenity now. Although he wouldn't really say it, he would more scream it out loud at the top of his lungs, shaking his fist in the air, serenity now, serenity now, serenity now. And it never worked for him. Shockingly, it never worked for him. But that image sticks in my head. We're yelling and screaming for peace in a world that is not going to provide it for us. Now, the peace that we are offered by God is different than this, and thank goodness for that. Thank goodness for that. It is not fleeting, but lasting. It is not unattainable, but it is available to us and to everyone. And better yet, it does not require you, me, or anyone else to be conflict-free in order to attain it. In fact, it, it, it looks our conflict in the eye and says, Hi, how are you today? I knew you'd be here. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it, that, that we can have this thing? So let's get down to the nuts and bolts of how the peace of God is different than any sort of peace we could possibly have here on earth. And I want to warn you that some of the things I'm about to say to you are not going to bring you peace. But perhaps that's the way it should be. I don't know. I'll let you decide for yourself. Number one, peace is found in God's ability to set things right. God is more capable than fill in the blank. There is nothing you can put in that blank that will be more capable of God than God is, I should say. And this is the basic principle we need to wrap our minds around this morning. The peace of God does not come from our own efforts. There is nothing we can do to create the peace that God has for us. It's not called the peace of Bryce, is it? It's called the peace of whom? God. Therefore, it comes from God. We have a great talent or ability to create all sorts of messes for ourselves, don't we? We're pretty good at it. 
creating messes for ourselves. It reminds me of what uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, where he says, you know, people are inventing ways of doing evil. I would say we invent a lot of the trouble we get into. We create situations for ourselves. And we see this happen again and again throughout the Old and New Testaments, that when the people of God are close to God, there is peace, there is assurance, But as you read, specifically through the Old Testament, because we have so many narratives there, as you read through the Old Testament, you see this peace erode steadily over time. Until finally, the people move away from God. And when they move away from God, it is a time of great chaos. There's fighting in every home. There's fighting within the nation. There's fighting against other nations. Those times are marked by war and conflict and anger and all of those things. But the same thing happens throughout those stories, which is the people realize how miserable they are without God, and what do they do? They cry out to him. And what does God do? He hears their cries, and he sets things right once more. And as long as they stay close to God, God keeps things where they need to be. But they keep this cycle going. Things are how they should be. Well, what if we add a little more weight on this side? Uh, It's a little weight. Maybe in order to fix this, let's just add more. You know what I'm saying? Let's look at Psalm uh, 85, verses 1 through 2 and 8 through 12. And this is just one example. The Psalms are, are pretty rich with these, these examples of, uh, of, of sort of this entire situation. So let's read this here. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. Verse 8. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. God promised in this passage, he promised peace to his people. And what does the writer acknowledge is the key to this peace? How did it happen? It happened because God restored the fortunes of Jacob. God did this. They had gone away from him, and what did he do? He took them back, and he made them his people again. He forgave them all the ways that his people had sinned against him. He forgave them, and so the writer declares that peace is now possible because salvation is near. And faithfulness starts to flow. You know whose faithfulness that is? It's God's faithfulness. It's God's righteousness. Because God is the one who's doing all the heavy lifting here. The people are not. Faithfulness springs from the earth. Peace is possible. 
in the life of God's people because of his great ability and desire to restore his people. And he does it over and over and over again. He restores his people and heals the relationship. We speak often of God's love and faithfulness, and I think we should. I mean, those are good things to talk about. But one of the things we don't often talk about is God's steadfast nature. He doesn't stop being who he is. And God reacts pretty much the same way to whatever differing scenarios he faces with his people, doesn't he? He forgives, he restores, he rebuilds. God is steadfast in those things. It is, it is as much a part of who he is as his faithfulness, his love, and his goodness. He forgives his people over and over again, even in times when they had no right to expect God to take them back again. God stuck with it, and he used his power to restore his people again and again. And he might have grown weary. We see a weary God at different points in the Bible. A God who is tired. Can't this just, like, what's the problem here? But he does not stop redeeming and restoring, does he? You, you don't, he gives them choices, but he doesn't stop redeeming and restoring. This is the key to what makes peace possible with God. We know that he will not grow tired of redeeming the people that he loves. And that's good news, isn't it? So, therefore, we have peace because we have a Savior. Capital S. We have a Savior. Now, here's something you might not have considered before. At least biblically speaking, but I think it spills over, there is a direct correlation between peace and forgiveness. The two are hand in hand. We see it in passages like the one we just read from Psalm 85. When the people are away from God, their lives are chaotic and there is no peace. However, when they are restored and God has forgiven them, what do they experience? They experience peace because things are set back the way they should. When God forgives them, they are restored and they find peace again. Now, perhaps you're aware of, you know, there's a very popular Hebrew word uh, that's used for the word peace, which is the word shalom, right? It's, it's probably one of the most commonly known uh, Jewish words or Hebrew uh, language words. So shalom or peace is, is uh, wholeness with God, with relationships, with others around you, and with the world. That's that's the, the, you know, Reader's Digest version of that, of that definition. So when the people were away from God, here's what happened. They were not whole. They were fractured as individuals, as a nation, as the people of God. And they were fractured because they were away from God. They didn't have a whole relationship with him. And that, that, that fracturing spread to, to all parts of their lives. But when God brought them back in, they were made 
whole again. And that wholeness brought everything again into balance, and therefore they had peace. Restoration, wholeness, peace. This tells us something that I think is important, okay? This, this idea of peace being related to forgiveness. Fear is the thief of peace. I think more than anything else. And I know this to be true in my own life, that it is fear that most often takes whatever wholeness, rightness, peace I feel in my life. Fear, and this, this can take a lot of forms. Um, a wrong that is remembered by someone who refuses to forget. A debt that's not paid, that just hangs over you. The thing that we owe that we can't give back. The, the repayment we want so much to be able to give and know we will never be able to. The hurt that we have caused, which we can't undo. I don't know what you think of when you think of those things but the emotion that I most strongly connect with them is fear. A close second would probably be sadness that those things are in existence. In our relationship with God, fear is present when we are away from him, when things are broken, when we are not whole but fragmented, when salvation is not present. But this is the incredible thing about Jesus, isn't it? And how the whole story changed with him, because Jesus is the culmination of God's desire to forgive and restore. Before Jesus, each restoration lasted as long as the people of God would allow it to. And it would end when they would turn away from God again. But when Jesus came, the kind of restoration God enacted reached a whole new level because this was not temporary. This was for all times. It could not be undone. From Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, Isaiah says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and, and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. 
Now, there's something we need to understand about this. What Isaiah says right off the bat is that these are words of comfort. Why do the people need to be comforted? Because they were away from God. And when they're away from God, they are fragmented, they are not whole, and I think they are fearful. So these are words of comfort. And what is the comfort that they had? Well, it's plain. The sin they committed was paid for. It's done. It's over. And furthermore, the way of God is being prepared. And I don't know if you, you know, we've heard this passage a lot. I don't know if you've ever thought, though, about what it is that he's describing and how it relates to peace. Look at it one more time. The highway is straight where it once was curved. Every valley that you would have to go into and climb back up is made. It's raised up. So everything is now on the same level. The rough ground is level. The rugged places a plain. What is he describing here? What's he describing? He's describing a process that is not hard, but is marked by being easy and therefore is the, a vehicle for peace. It's a vehicle for peace is what he's describing. When with, with, with the things that are happening, with the things that God is doing, with the coming of this one, everything that was so hard to do before is not going to be hard anymore because the entire landscape will change with the one who is coming. The landscape will change. It will all look different Again, from Psalm 85, verses 1 through 2. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. And because of that, not only are they forgiven, not only are they set free and all those good things, but they can finally do this. Because look at what God has done. Jesus is the one who makes this possible. From Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus, great restoration has come. Why? Because forgiveness is here. 
Forgiveness is within your reach at all times. At all times. Forgiveness is within your reach, and that cannot be taken from you. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 8. And let me just give you the quick paraphrase. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord, so let them try. But it's not going to happen. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And listen, more than anything, that knowledge should give us peace. Fear has no place in our lives because God has redeemed and forgiven and is restoring us every moment of every day. So what do you have to be afraid of? The wrongs you committed, they're gone. Forgotten. Not held against you. He doesn't even want to talk about it. You are forgiven and Remarkably, it's because he loves you so stinking much. God loves you so much. And that, my friends, is a bringer of peace. We are, finally, we have to acknowledge the elephant in the room. We are the elephant, I'm afraid. We are the biggest obstacle to our own ability to experience the peace of Christ. And these passages we read, again, I'm sorry to just harp on this, but why did the people not have the peace of God? Because they left him. They left him. They did not have then the assurance that having the presence of God brings. And the result of that was broken relationship, separation, and conflict. And this is not new to us, okay? Adam and Eve in the garden. What were they offered? The ability to be like God. And did they take it? Yep. They surely did. Why? Well, because they're like us. And if we can be like God, a lot of times we want to be, don't we? But here's the thing. As long as we cling to control, we will not experience the peace that knowing we are not in control brings us. Let me say that one more time. As long as we cling to control, we will not experience the peace that knowing we are not in control brings to us. This sounds sort of weird, I know. But one of the times that I felt the most peace in my life was a time where I knew there was nothing I could do about anything. You know? And everyone around me was very worried about me thinking that and what that meant and how that might play out. 
And the one thing I couldn't describe really to anyone is I can breathe again. It seems counterintuitive, I know. How does knowing you can't really fix anything bring you peace? Because God is more capable than I am. And where I am incapable, he is more than enough. More than enough. For whatever mess I have created for myself. For whatever thing I feel like someone has put me in. We have a God who actually is in control. So release your grip. Know that God has already done what needs to be done. And know that he offers you peace if you will allow him to give it to you. Our peace is found in what God has already done. The weight of others' expectations, Jesus has already forgiven us. The knowledge of our failures, Jesus tells us that our value is not found in what we do, but in the love that God has for us. Fear of the unknown, of failures yet to come. God knows we will continue to make mistakes, and he loves us anyway. Our salvation is not dependent upon our performance and controlling outcomes. It rests on the everlasting, steadfast love of our God, who sent his Son to the world to bring peace to a people who needed it desperately. And that peace was hand in hand with forgiveness, love, and salvation. He did this by laying his life down and by rising again, defeating death and any penalty we might be afraid of. It's gone in the face of the resurrected Lord. And this is good news. It's good news. And not just for us, but for the world. For the world.